many years ago when our children were very young, we went on a camping trip. We took a pop-up trailer up to Maine. And when we got back from that trip, I could tell there was something different about Beth, my wife. I could tell. I had this intuition that she had checked a box in her mind. We did that. It's done. So there was some shock and awe a few years later when I suggested we do a, a tour around the West. And uh, she said, no, we did that. It's done. <laughs> but we did it anyway. And one of the things that she observed, which, uh, <laughs> which I appreciated, was uh, she said, you know, I don't really enjoy this except for this fact. That when you're off the grid and you're pressed into this little space for two weeks, that you have to work all the way through the things that come up. You have to work all the way through your issues. You have to work all the way through conflict, differences, decision-making. You have to work all the way through it because you can't escape. There's nowhere to go, right? You've got to work with the people that are around you and work all the way through it. I think one of the reasons why we stop growing in the Christian life is that we don't work all the way through things anymore. We find ways to avoid each other. We, we do workarounds. We develop skills where we don't even acknowledge that that bothered us. Or uh, we develop, a, we develop a, a mindset that says, you know, I can figure this out all on my own. And we hunker down and we just sort of go into lockdown mode and we just say, you know, this is good. I'm, I've sort of arrived and um, I don't have to work through any of this anymore. Or we try to do it all by ourselves. And so this morning, what I want to show you from the book of Romans, as we talk about life together, is that in order to keep growing the Christian life, you have to have a trusted few. You have to cultivate a place where you can belong to a trusted few. From the Word of God, Romans 8, verses 12 through 17. Hear God's Word this morning. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. Now, by the way, let me pause. When, I, when he says brothers, he said brethren, this is addressing a crowd. This is a, you know, this is a period, this is a culturally dated kind of way of saying to, to the group, all right? So don't be thrown off by that. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in just a minute. Uh, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live by the Spirit, you will put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. God bless us now through your word, not only to our minds to understand it, but to our hearts to receive it, that through our lives we may live it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, working all the way through with a trusted few. 
working all the way through with a trusted few. I think we stop growing because we've not cultivated the trust, the ability to get real, to get under the news and sports and weather and to deal with life all the way through, to deal with the things that come up, to deal with the things that we have misgivings about, to be able to have people we can turn to and speak our mind. end up with is a lot of self-absorption, a lot of self-absorption. So this morning, I want to prove to you, because I think, you know, on our, on our highest Sundays in my eight years being here, on our highest Sundays, uh, there is still a low percentage of people that have a trusted few, a low percentage now, I'm, I'm not saying it's, it, it's, it's terrible. I think it's very good. We're, we have a lot higher percentage than the average church of people who are in Sunday schools and small groups and come to, come to MOPs or come to, to one of the other women's ministries or come to one of the men's groups. We have a, you know, comparatively. But even if, the, uh, even if we're at 50%, that's half of the people who come to this church who don't have a trusted few. And you know what? That keeps... that You, you think, oh, Tim, get some sleep, will you? But I, it, th- this does keep me up at night. I, I, I do think about every one of you and your spiritual growth. I, I want everybody to be in a pattern of sustained life change, of growth all the way through. So I want to prove to you that you need to develop a circle of trust, a trusted few to cultivate that. And to be able to rely on it. So let's look at the problem. Let's look at the solution and the prescription. That's how we're going to do it this morning. We're going to look at the problem, the solution, and the prescription. First, the problem. The problem is that without a trusted few, we have blind spots. And and, and this is what happens. We have blind spots, and this is what happens. It's not the appetite. He talks about the flesh. It's not the appetite. It's a distorted appetite. It's not that there's a problem having appetites, physical appetites, all kinds of appetites, the whole range of appetites that you and I have, all the hungers that we have. God made those. They're not a surprise to him. We don't apologize for them. I mean, Christian life isn't saying, well, let's step away from these. Let's want, let's forget about ourselves. You know, let's, let's, let's discount all these hungers and, and be spiritual. All right, I'm mocking it because that is not Christianity. That's Gnosticism. And this is, this is the context into which that, that Paul was speaking. I've mentioned this a couple of times. But a lot of times I think our, our American compartmentalism thinks that we come to church and we have to have a certain code of ethic. And then we go out in the world and we, do something, we have a different code of ethic. You need to know that, that God calls you to, 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 to have the full, fullness of life. To engage all your appetites. But not in a distorted way. Not to distort them. And that's what we distort our appetites because there's too much of ourselves in it. Now, let's, let's talk about that. So in, in verse 12, it talks about the flesh. And this is why I, I just spent time distinguishing between appetites versus distorted appetites because it sounds like he's just saying, deny your body, deny the physical realm, deny all of your appetites, just forget about all that and pray, right? Isn't that what sometimes you think people are saying when they're talking about the spiritual life? No. You're, you're an onion. Did you know that? I mean, yeah, and sometimes, some of you all smell like that. Sometimes I smell like that. But you are an onion. The layers of an onion at every layer of your life, you're a spiritual being. And so what he's saying, by the flesh, is not appetites, but distorted appetites. Distorted. 
You see, this, this is what it is. When, when, when you have an appetite and you eat and you have enough, it's enough, right? You're done. You push away from the, the table and you're done. But there are other appetites where it's not enough to have enough. You know this, right? Some appetites get distorted where it's not enough to have enough. You have to have more than. You have to have better than. It's like the guy who always has to be passing in the passing lane, right? Right up against your bumper in the back. Sometimes it's you. Sometimes it's me, right? It's like I've got to be in the passing. If I'm going to make progress in life and I feel like I'm making progress in life, then I have to be passing somebody. And sometimes we get that way in certain aspects, certain emotions that drive us. Or think about it this way. Somebody who's not really competing with you, but you think of them as your rival because they do something you do. Oh, maybe they're very kind to you. Maybe they've been generous to you, but you're still competing with them. Why is that? Why do you have to be better then? Why is it that when somebody that you think about as your rival, who isn't really a rival to you, doesn't, doesn't d- diminish anything that you need, right, by having, but, 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 but when they fail or when they fall, you kind of think to yourself, you get something in the pit of your stomach that says, ah, makes you feel better. What is that? Do the lions out on the savannah have that kind of a... I mean, in other words, it's not just like having enough, like beating out somebody so that you have enough. When you, when you have enough, when, when, when your life is full, and yet you still have these, this sense of you have to have just a little bit more and just a little bit more. What is that? It's a distorted appetite. It's what Paul's calling the flesh. And what's at the very center of that is a self that needs to be better than, is a self that needs to have more than, is a self that has to always be puffed up and puffed up. You know what pride really is? It's like a balloon. It's full of hot air, right? It's just full of nothing, right? That's pride. It's full of nothing. That's why it's so fragile. That's why ego is so fragile. Little, little pinprick in a balloon pops That's your ego. And this is a distorted sense of self, a self apart from God, to have life apart from God, to be in control of all my appetites, to be able to have it when I want, how much I want, and to be able to know that I've got a little bit more and a little bit more and more than you and better than you. That is the flesh. It's a distorted sense of self. It's not satisfied with enough. It's not satisfied with enough. It has to have more than, better than. To feel right. Why? Because... We don't have something settled with God. And so we're sort of comparing ourselves to the other people. We're, we're, we're morally, emotionally, psychologically, socially, we're constantly trying to vie for some sort of status so that we can feel good about ourselves. That is not just an appetite. That's a distorted appetite. It's, a, it's a, an estrangement from ourselves, an estrangement from God that results in an estrangement from one another. Do you see how this goes? This is what Paul is saying. Don't feed that. Don't feed that beast. You just grow the appetite when you feed that ego, when you feed that sense of, that sense of self apart from God. It just grows. When you feed that, that hunger just grows. You know what that's called? You know what that's something that... that that grows, an appetite that grows by feeding it? You know what that is? You know what that is? You know what the word for that is? Addiction. It's an addiction. We are probably the most addicted people on the planet. In the West, we are some of the most addicted people of all times. Just 
a little bit more will satisfy. You see, this is the problem. I know this sounds, this, this feels bad, doesn't it? It feels bad because I'm in this, you're in this. We're in this together, y'all, right? Hug, hug. Okay, we're in this together. A little emoji, right? Emoji moment. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. This is the problem. We got a solution. We got an application coming, all right? But it's, it's hard to hear the problem, though, it, it, when it's so personalized, when you recognize, yep, we're addicted. We're addicted to self. We're addicted to just a little bit more. We're addicted to better than, to more than. We're addicted. So what's the solution? What's the solution? Well, the solution is if, if I'm by myself, if I want to succeed by myself on my own terms, to have life on my own terms, to be better than, to be autonomous, to be free from uh, all of the uh, constraints, then the solution is to be part of something. Be part of a family. To recognize that a healthy identity is within relationships. First and foremost, relationship with God. But God fixes the relationship. He heals the relationship. How does he do this? By accepting you just as you are. Now, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at how God accepts us just as, as we are. But not only how he does, but why he does it. Now, how is obvious. He, he adopts you. It, it says, you know, you're adopted as, as sons. It, ladies, don't feel le- left out. This is an illustration. This isn't just directed at, you know, I said earlier, I was talking about how he's addressing the crowd as brethren. But he's really saying, hey, people. But in this case, don't feel left out, ladies. This verse is for you as much as for me. This is an illustration of primogenitor. The idea is that if you don't have an accepted line, if you, don't, if you don't have someone to pass all your worldly goods to, if you don't have somebody to pour your life out to, you're working and you're going to pass things on, uh, if you don't have somebody like that, then you know, in, in Greco-Roman culture, you could adopt somebody. It's usually that you adopt them in their adulthood. You adopt them when they're a young man. And maybe you're mentoring them and then you're handing things over. This is the illustration of the Christian life, of, of God accepting us just as we are. He didn't imagine that person who, who's uh, adopting someone. They didn't get to raise them. They developed all their habits already. They, they've, uh, they've already sort of set their life patterns. Now, now maybe there's a, a certain kind of influence that they can have, but they have to accept this person just as they are. All their background, all of the, all the things that they developed, all of the all the priorities that they have, they have to accept them just as they are. Why does God do it this way? Why does God make us heirs? It talks about this in, in verse 14. You can see the, the, that, that you're accepted just as you are as an heir. Why does he do it this way? Well, there's an important reason. It has to do with what I, what I said a minute ago about, about defining ourselves apart from God, about addiction. There's a reason why God accepts us as we are. And I want you to be very curious about it. Because I'm about to answer the question. But, but I want to surface a need in you to know that he accepts you as you are because there's something, there's a switch that has to flip in our lives. There's something that has to happen. Let me illustrate it and then we'll, we'll, we'll explain it, Okay. In 1938, a guy named Bill Wilson, along with a friend of his who was a physician, came up with a, a, a program that everyone in this room has heard of before. And there are 12 steps to this program. 
called the 12-step program. It's Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me tell you the first two steps of the 12-step program. You ready? The first step is that you admit that you are powerless over the problem. We talked about the problem, right? The first step is to admit that you are powerless over the problem, right? Just a little bit more isn't going to do it. Having more than the next guy isn't going to do it. It is a threshold that's always moving as you try to step through the door. Just a little bit more doesn't satisfy the ego, the life defined by ourselves, personal autonomy, life on our own terms. It's never enough. It's never enough. We were powerless. That's step one to say, I admit it. I'm powerless over this problem. You know what step two is? Step two is to turn and say, I need a power bigger than I am. I need a greater power with me, right with me, alongside me. Let me tell you how gracious God is. You you know that this this 12-step program works even if people don't believe in God. That seems kind of strange, but it's it's called common grace. The the concept is called common grace. You can see it throughout Scripture that God uh, stabilizes a broken environment, a fallen world through common grace. And so even those, those, even, even grace, which is the saving, the salvific, the thing that brings us salvation, God is so gracious with grace, grace that he makes it work. Even if you don't believe in him, he makes it work, at least not in terms of salvation, but he makes the principle work in terms of overcoming addictions. Isn't that gracious? It's just amazing. I mean, I've known people who, 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 now, I don't believe anybody doesn't believe in God. I actually have never met anybody who, who, who uh, persistently does not believe in God. I mean, I think people say they don't, but it's usually some kind of emotional thing that, or, or some kind of relational thing or some kind of, of social thing that's blocking them. But when people say they don't believe in God, even if they sort of accept a higher power, I've, I've, I've witnessed this personally many times where people, that, that God is so gracious with grace that when you say, Hey, you know what? I, I, I just, I need help. Guess what you've done? Guess what happens? Jesus calls it a mustard seed. Something new gets planted. There's some new life. There's a spark of something. Something besides you <laughs> inhabits the center of your life. Oh, that's enough. Jesus is saying, I can work with that. Just a mustard seed. Just somebody who says, it's not just all about me, but I need help. And you know what? That's exactly, that's exactly the place where God can work with us. That's why, now see how I've answered the question? Why does, why, why does he accept us just as we are? Because that's the place where we recognize, huh, not only do I need help, but help is being offered. And that little mustard seed, Lord, I need help. I need you in my life. I need you alongside me. I need you with me. I I can't do this by myself. Mm. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I can work with that. Paul is saying, you are an heir, just as you are, accepted. And when you recognize that and say, there's nothing I can add to it, 
a little seed of life gets planted. You see? And that's why he calls it a spirit of sonship. Again, it's an illustration of inheritance. A spirit of sonship. Instead of a, the, the spirit of the flesh, he talks about, he's contrasting these two things. A spirit of, or living by, or a lifestyle, or sort of identity. A spirit of the flesh. Life on my own terms. Life by myself. Autonomous life. A spirit of sonship. By grace we have been saved through faith. That one little spark can start a fire. So, that's the solution. Problem? Life on our own terms. Solution? Little spark. Not only myself, but also a bigger life. That there is a God and it's not me. That there are other people around me. So what's the prescription? What's the prescription? If the problem is me, if the problem is me on my own terms, am I going to be able to solve this by myself? No. We've already established that. And in fact, that's the very place where the spark begins, is to admit that there's a problem, that we need a higher power. But do you think that you can continue to grow past your self-centeredness? Do I think I can grow past my self-centeredness, my self-absorption, my, my ego, my concerns, my self-absorption, and all of those different self-problems by myself, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what's so funny. I mean, when I hear people say, well, you know, I, I you know, I, I like the Jesus thing, but it's just Jesus and me, right? I mean, I, I'm, I'm all for Jesus, but not his church. When people say that, I think, I, I don't think you get it. I think you might be missing something. I think you might be missing that, that life ordered around you is not the program. That the program of the Christian life is life ordered around God. And when we think we can do that by ourselves, then I think we, we might be missing something. Don't you think? I mean... This is often how I think. It's like, I'm just going to muscle through this. I'm just going to skill up. I'm just going to figure this out. I'm just going to kind of power through, right? And here I am, all by myself, trying to solve it by myself. And you know what the problem is? The very solution that I turn to is the very root of most of my problems. Going it alone. Figuring it out by myself. Personal autonomy. Being uh, and having life on my own terms. <laughs> and then we try to spiritualize it and call it the Christian life. So the prescription is, obviously, I think you can see where we're going. The prescription is life together. That the diet and exercise that your, your heavenly physician is calling you to is to cultivate a trusted few. People with whom you can share life. Share under the news, under the sports, under the weather. To get real with them, to be real. You know, this is a, this is a, a group of upper middle class, um, affluent, high achieving people. Some of you overachieving. Yes, that's an accusation. And you took it as a compliment. You know, I mean, that's how you know that you're, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm an overachiever. And so we are the ones who have the most trouble letting people in. We are the most to lose. We are the, the, the most wrinkle-free lives that we want to keep that way. We want the storefront just so, even though there's a lot of things molding on the, on the shelves in the back. So we need to cultivate life together so we can trust. 
I want to tell you a quick story that illustrates that. I think, I hope it will inspire you as it inspires me. A story about one of the, um, one of the men that I admire who, um, who was one of my professors. And uh, his name was Garth Rozelle. And Garth was just a, just a gentleman of a guy, just a, a caring guy, somebody who, who saw everyone. I just, you know, when you were with him, as the kind of guy who knew he was 100% with you. Brilliant. Wrote a bunch of books. Um, in my seminary, he was, he was just considered, you know, just a hero. One time we were in a lecture hall, about 100 people in it, and uh, he was speaking, and um, he used an idiom that is probably most people would recognize today as kind of un-PC, you know? And maybe you think, well, good. <laughs> but, but just follow the illustration here. Because um, some of you just don't care about that thing. But, but it, it did offend some people. Um, it, it's not, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a, a, something awful. But, um, but I was surprised and a little shocked that uh, a woman, a couple of rows behind me, raised her hand and said, Dr. Rozelle, I'm just distracted by what you just said because this, you know, I just, it's not okay to, I don't know. I, I, didn't, I didn't like how you said that. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, praise in public and correct in private. You know, that's my, my rule, right? Don't you think? I mean, praise in public. And if you've got a problem with somebody, go one-on-one to them. Don't embarrass them. Embarrass yourself. And so I'm sitting here watching him, and I'm wondering how he's going to handle this. I mean, he could just sort of laugh it off, or he could say, okay, thanks for sharing. Or he could do all, any number of things and just dismiss it. But you know what he did? He thanked her. And it was It was sincere. In fact, I t- I, to this day, I am so impressed with his vulnerability. He said, yeah, the reason why this is, to me, just so powerful is that it's really hard. It takes an incredible strength and trust that I'm not summarized by my image I'm not reduced to it either. And so for someone to stand up in front of everybody and just say, you know what, I, I really appreciate that. I've been trying to work out those. Anything that distracts, the way I say something, if that distracts someone from what I say, I th- thank you for helping me work that out. Uh, and I, I doubt I'll ever make that mistake again because you had the courage to speak up. It was so generous and so... Uh, so here are the three, three things that I see. It's a struggle, and this, this gets us to verse 17, uh, verse 16. It, it, it says, the word says suffer, but if you, if you look at the word closely, uh, you look at it clo- closely, it has to do with the word sympathy. And, and so it's a, it's a sense of, of connecting with difficulty, right? And in fact, I, went, I, I, I felt like I had my own hunch about this thing, but then I, I tracked it down. And I looked at the place in Hebrews where it talks about Moses. Now, check this out. I want to prove to you that this is what's going on because this is your prescription, okay? Moses, in Hebrews, it talks about Moses saying, you know, I'm not content just being uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He wasn't content just to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He, and it uses the same word, entered into struggle with his people. You see how that whole story works? He laid down the comfort 
of being adopted by Pharaoh so that he could operate as an adopted son of God. But the call was to struggle with his people. Now you see where I'm going with it. Who else did that, by the way? Can you think of somebody else who might have laid down his, uh, his position, his crown, his glory, and entered into struggle with you, with me? Isn't it amazing to see the Old and New Testament, tie, how it ties together? Almost as if it were on purpose, right? Now, do you think that Moses and the whole uh, arc of Scripture pivoting around this concept and Jesus fulfilling it is going to do all this and then we are just going to, well, we're just going to figure it out on our own, right? You think we're not called in the same kind of vulnerability as Garth Rizal? You think we're not called to orient ourselves to the same kind of truth through struggle with each other? Do you think that maybe God has put us together in this place, in this new fall season, so that you can keep growing? And so I ask you this morning, what's your responsibility? How do you make that work? You think about the times in your life where you disconnected. I think of like college. You're still a kid and you don't know how all out there it really is. I mean, we've got one going back to school today and and he's about to connect with all, I mean, I'm thinking about all the vulnerabilities. They're just all out there. And you know, we get tired of it, so we cover them up and we hide them. But that's when you really connected with people, isn't it? Or when you have a baby and there are all the diapers everywhere and you can't hide the mess and all that kind of stuff and somebody comes over and you're really connected, right? Or you're in a crisis and you can't, you can't, you can't hide the fact that you have a need and you connected and it's like, pff, aha, <laughs> this is how we're made to connect. It is a broken world. It's a fallen world. We're all dealing with this nature. But dealing with it on our own isn't going to keep you growing. And so you have to develop a trusted few. You know what I've done this morning? I've tried to prove to you that you have a problem. I've tried to show you the solution. I've tried to give you a prescription. But I've tried to be a little bit like uh, Coach Landry, Tom Landry, who is the coach of the Cowboys when I was young. He said, my job as a coach is to get people to do what they're reluctant to do so that they can become what they always dreamed they might be. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the way that you sympathized with us, agonized over us, struggled together with us. You laid down your crown in order to give us an inheritance. Heavenly Father, would you give us in this new year the courage at least to lay aside some of our pride, some of our own self-serving glory, that we may find a trusted few. In Jesus' name, amen.